How are you doing with working with continuous practice? Continuous during kinhin, continuous during meals. We pick these certain places to be present. And then gradually, hopefully, we learn to be present at that time. It becomes more automatic. And then gradually, we weave a kind of tapestry of, of presence. We call it mindfulness or presence. It's a much more satisfying way to live than drifting through life, thinking about something else while we're doing one of the most pleasurable things we do in life, which is eating. So another place to be aware, to be present uh, during morning service is during the Shosai Mio Kichijo Dorani. So you will have heard people yelling during that sutra. Um, not my favorite thing, but um, people like it, so we've kept it. Um, it's a way of releasing frustration, I guess. But actually, the Shosai Mio is a chant for averting calamity. Catastrophe. So when you're chanting it, you can add that vehemence to it. Um, then it's meaningful. You can think of places in the world like your frustration with the fact that the war is ongoing in, in the Ukraine. So you can then send out the message, peace in Ukraine, through the Shosai Mio Kichijodorani. So it isn't just um, a jumble of Sino-Japanese syllables. It has power, if we give it power, and don't go unconscious. Rohatsu, 2023, everyone has awakened nature. Everyone is awakened nature. Our reading from Huang Po. You can imagine him as seven feet tall, which several sources say he was, and that he had a, a pearl, they call it a pearl, or an obvious bump in the middle of, of his forehead. It was said to have been caused not by something mysterious like a third eye, but by his constant bowing. So Wang Po wrote, or said, actually it's record, records of his saying, by one of his students. Our original nature is, in highest truth, devoid of any atom of objectivity. It is fluid, omnipresent, silent, pure. It is glorious and mysterious, peaceful joy. And that is all. Enter deeply into it by awakening to it yourself. Your total life is it in all its fullness utterly complete. There is naught beside. Even if you go through all the stages of a bodhisattva's progress towards Buddhahood one by one, and as Hogan mentioned, some teachings are 25 stages, some more than that. And of course, we all want to know where we are, right? When at last, in a single flash, you attain to full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature which has been with you all the time. And by all the foregoing stages, you will have added nothing to it at all. 
It doesn't mean the foregoing stages are all the stages we go through. Every day, sometimes every period in zazen aren't necessary. You can't discard it. All the work, the preparatory work, setting the stage. Dogen Zenji, in the Shobogenzo fascicle Kobushin, Shin is heart-mind, says, original unchanging Buddha mind is always trying to manifest itself and help us. So if we consider all the obstacles that are presented in our life as help from our original Buddha mind, it changes our orientation towards them. What can we learn from them? What can we unlearn from them? In my talk two days ago, I mentioned that we come to practice to investigate the question, what the heck is going on here? And when I wrote that down, it reminded me of a book that I read 55 years ago. Many of you weren't born then. (laughs) You know how certain parts of your life are still quite clear in your mind? Years later, this was like that. I was sitting in the sun, barefoot, on the edge of a brick porch in a house that we rented when my first husband was on sabbatical in Australia. And there were pink and white cosmos all around that I had planted that were blooming, and they were higher than the edge of the the porch, about as high as I was. And I was reading these words, which struck me to the core. And the author is talking about a book that he thinks needs to be written. The book I am thinking about would not be religious in the usual sense, but it would have to discuss many things with which religions have been concerned, the universe, and a person's place in it, the mysterious center of experience, which we call I myself, the problems of life and love, pain and death, and the whole question of whether existence has meaning in any sense of the word. For there is a growing appreciation that existence is a rat race in a trap. Living organisms, including people, are merely tubes, which put things in at one end and let them out at the other which both keeps them doing it and, in the long run, wears them out. So to keep the forest going, the tubes find ways of making new tubes, which also put things in at one end and let them out at the other. At the input end, they even develop ganglia of nerves called brains, with eyes and ears so that they can more easily scrounge around for things to swallow. As and when they get enough to eat, They use up their surplus energy by wiggling in complicated patterns, making all sorts of noises by blowing air in and out of the input hole and gathering together in groups to fight with other groups. (laughs) In time, the tubes grow such an abundance of attached appliances that they are hardly recognizable as mere tubes, and they manage to do this in a staggering variety of forms. There is a vague rule not to eat tubes of your own form. (laughs) 
But in general, there is serious competition as to who is going to be the top type of tube. All this seems marvelously futile, and when you begin to think about it, it begins to be more marvelous than futile. Indeed, it seems extremely odd. It is a special kind of enlightenment to have this feeling that the usual, the way things normally are, is odd, uncanny, and highly improbable. G.K. Chesterton once said, that is one thing to be amazed at a gorgon or a griffith, griffin, creatures, that, creatures which do not exist, but it is quite another and much higher thing to be amazed at a rhinoceros or a giraffe, creatures which do exist and look as if they don't. This feeling of universal oddity includes a basic and intense wondering about the sense of things. Why, of all possible worlds, this colossal and apparently unnecessary multitude of galaxies in a mysteriously curved space-time continuum, these myriads of differing tube species playing frantic games of one-upmanship, these numberless ways of doing it from the elegant architecture of the snow crystal or the diatom to the startling magnificence of the lyrebird or the peacock. And then he goes on to talk about different uh, philosophers who have pondered these questions and come up with various philosophical theories and religion as the two domains in which people sit down and contemplate the questions that he's asking. At one time I said, we are, we've become a halfway house for ex-philosophy majors because <laughs> who haven't found the answer in philosophy. <laughs> and then he goes on to talk about the difficulties in the world. This is in 1966. No, yeah, 1966 is when the book was written. I was reading it in 1973. But the world is in an extremely dangerous situation and serious diseases often require the risk of a dangerous cure. It is not that we may simply blow up the planet with nuclear bombs, again a threat, strangle ourselves with overpopulation, an ongoing threat, destroy our natural resources through poor conservation, or ruin the soil and its products with improperly understood chemicals and pesticides. Beyond all these is the possibility that civilization may be a huge technological success, but through methods that most people will find baffling frightening and disorienting because for one reason alone the methods will keep changing it may be and we could add social media it may be like playing a game in which the rules are constantly changed without ever being made clear a game from which one cannot withdraw without suicide and in buddhism that's not an adequate withdrawal and in which one can never return to an older form of the game. You know, people's nostalgia for the old days when things were simpler, etc. But the problem of person and techniques is almost always stated in the wrong way. It is said that humanity has evolved one-sidedly, growing in technical power without any comparable growth in moral integrity. 
Yet the problem is more basic. The root of the matter is the way in which we feel and conceive ourselves as human beings. Our sensation of being alive, of individual existence, and identity. We suffer from a hallucination, from a false and distorted sensation of our own existence as living organisms. Most of us have the sensation that I myself is a separate center of feeling and action, living inside and bounded by the physical body, a center which confronts an external world of people and things, making contact through the senses with the universe both alien and strange. Everyday figures of speech reflect this illusion. I came into this world. You must face reality, the conquest of nature. So this was a, this is a book called The Book About the Taboo of Knowing Who You Are by Alan Watts. And interestingly, um, Hogan used to come home from high school, turn on the TV, and Alan Watts would be talking every day. We are born out of the universe, out of original nature, which is not a thing, as Hogan keeps reminding us, which is devoid of any objectivity, as Huang Po says. We are so fixed in our view of being, as Alan Watts also points out, of being inside something we call me, a tube that is completely separate and thus everything else must be an object outside of us. We are born out of the universe of one everything as a separate, naked, and helpless being. This is quite wonderful and distressing. Each person in the universe, each animal, each plant, each bit of rock hurling through empty space, each black hole, each bit of existence is unique, created through a chain, a unique chain of cause and effect. You will never be repeated. You will never, ever be repeated. How wonderful. But for those organisms that have a certain type of brain, how terrifying, how terrible, how terribly lonely. This is where the loneliness, the alienation, and the complicated suffering of a unique human being begins. And this is the tension of opposites that again and again characterizes the all-inclusive view of Zen practice. Once you begin to see this tension of opposites in Zen, it's everywhere. It's long ago I planned that that would be the title of my next book. We are simultaneously alone and all one. Each balances the other, alone and all one. Alan Watts goes on.
to say, this feeling of being lonely and very temporary visitors in the universe is in flat contradiction to everything known about human beings and all other living organisms in the sciences. We do not come into this world, we come out of it, as leaves from a tree. As the ocean waves, the universe peoples. Every individual is an expression of the whole realm of nature, a unique action of the total universe. This fact is rarely, if ever, experienced by most individuals. Even those who know it to be true in theory do not sense or feel it, but continue to be aware of themselves as isolated egos inside bags of skin. The first result of this illusion, the illusion that we are lonely and only temporary visitors in this universe, is that our attitude towards the world outside us is largely hostile. We are forever conquering nature, space, mountains, deserts, forests, and insects, instead of learning to cooperate with them in a harmonious order. We do not need a new religion or a new Bible. We need a new experience, a new feeling of what it is to be I. In Sashin, we put all other concerns aside to spend hours looking directly at this taboo topic. Who am I really? Why do I suffer? And what can I do to modify or end that suffering? We take apart the self through the four foundations of mindfulness. We bring awareness to the group of sensations that we call my body. Just taking the label out begins the first degrees of separation that are necessary to see what is really going on. How does this machinery work? So instead of my body and my breath and my knee pain, we speak about the body, the breath, and the strong sensations towards the bottom of the field of constantly changing display of sensations. Next, we check the feeling tone, perhaps easiest to perceive in the early morning when our mind is relatively quiet. People often ask, why do we get up so early in the morning to practice? The mind is relatively quiet, especially if we get up before the mind expects to be up and talking to us. And the world around us is quiet, which really helps too. Once we had a visitor and people, people come in often just to see the place. Some people, a lot of people drive up Drive slowly around the parking lot. <laughs> we wave and they drive back down. <laughs> but occasionally they come in, and these people, these young people had come in, I think they're in their 20s, I think. And they were looking at the schedule by the cafeteria. And one of them, her eyes widened, and she said, 3.50? She said, I have never seen a day from that side. <laughs> So 
So the four foundations of mindfulness build up in a very considered way. If the body is not at rest, if we haven't attended to the body, And Guawu has introduced us to this progressive relaxation, tightening and relaxing, which is very interesting to do. If we don't attend to the body, then the mind can't settle. Then next, we check the feeling tone, perhaps easiest to perceive in the early morning when our mind is relatively quiet. Positive feeling tone? Hmm. Negative? Hmm. Or neutral? Eh, just chilling. Why is that important? Why is checking the feeling tone important? Because feeling tone is the seed that grows emotions, also known as the three poisons. Often people are struck by the innocence or purity of new babies or baby animals. Is my cat or dog innately enlightened? And are they my teacher in a furry disguise? Is this purity, this innocence, an example of innate Buddha nature? Are babies born enlightened and then we confuse them into suffering? Good job. You're so cute. Stop that. How could you be so stupid? Nobody likes you. And so on. Conditioning, conditioning, conditioning. And then we... Do we just confuse them? Someone asked the Buddha this question. Is a young tender infant lying prone, just drinking milk and eating rice gruel and excreting, simple tube, right, in one end, out the other, are they innately enlightened? They don't have notions such as identity or my views or doubt about the teachings, nor even ideas about other beings. So are they innately enlightened? The Buddha said no. They might look pure and innocent, but they have within them latent tendencies called anusaya, which, like dormant seeds under the right conditions, will grow and cause suffering for ourselves and for others. So all of us are born with these seeds. And then depending on causes and conditions, some of them grow, become strategies for life, Then we come to practice and we have to examine them and unwind them. And that's not, you know, there are many ways of doing that, not just therapy is one, Buddhist practice is another, meditation practice is another, the work of Byron Katie is another. You know, once you start investigating all of this, you're very interested in ways to see it. So here are the the seven latent tendencies or hidden inclinations, or they're called latent liabilities. Latent liabilities, I like that. The latent tendency to sense greed, the latent tendency to aversion, the latent tendency to speculative opinion, the latent tendency to skeptical doubt, Speculative opinion is very interesting. We're just like awash in a sea of it right now with all the theories that are spreading on the internet. And, you know, we all maybe maybe have friends or relatives who have theories about why certain things are happening. Like there's a 
coven of pedophiliac politicians. And so, or there's the, you know, the big pharma and George Soros and Hillary Clinton, etc., all doing this to us. And it gives us some sense of control, I think, when we think, oh, there's a reason. Or we think, well, eventually aliens are going to come down and rescue us. Or whatever we think, right? There's a, there's a sense of, kind of sense of satisfaction. Okay, I got the explanation now. I can just sit with that and work with that. The tendency to speculative opinion. It's hard when somebody's forcing you to listen to their opinion, which you don't agree with. But it's just speculative opinion, and so is your opinion. So don't know mine is very helpful. Four, the latent tendency to skeptical doubt, which can pull your practice right out from under you, particularly if you begin to doubt your own ability as a spiritual seeker. The tendency to conceit and pride. The latent tendency to craving for continued existence. Okay, I, I, I confess. I want to live another lifetime so I can learn to speak another language fluently and learn to ride the unicycle and juggle at the same time. <laughs> As you get to be our age, you have to start throwing ideas of what you were going to accomplish overboard. The latent ten- tendency towards ignorance. So all of these tendencies are seeds lying dormant within us when we're born. And then according to causes and conditions, cause and effect, they may bloom. And we all know these tendencies. Sometimes someone we've never met walks in the door and we feel aversion. Or we feel attraction, we haven't even met them. Speculative opinion arises. Oh, I bet they're smart. Are they smarter than me? Who's on top? Where will I fit in now in the intelligence hierarchy in the monastery? (laughs) Or, I think this looks like a homeless person. Maybe they're on drugs. I hope they don't ask to stay here. You know, all of that just, 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 we see form and color and movement, and there it goes. So even after we have significant openings, there is still work to be done on those latent tendencies. So those who live at the monastery know that I have a persistent delusion that if I can't find something, someone stole it or took it. Maybe they didn't know it was mine, but somebody took it. And it's never true. It is never true. You think I could like erase that thought, but it's just, it always arises. And of course, it's always that I misplaced it. It's somewhere. And I eventually find it where I left it. So there was a funny example of this at this big ceremony, this Daijukai in Los Angeles, uh, where I was one of the efficients. So I had to continually undress, study what I was supposed to do next, make a sheet, sheet so I would remember what this complicated ceremony, what I had to do get all dressed up in my regalia, and then go down, trotting down to the ceremonial hall and participate in the ceremony. And that went on for five days. So at one point I put on, the bishop asked me to put on the mountain seat um, 
Oquesa that many of you worked on with those beautiful mountains and rain stitches on, embroidered on them. And he asked me to wear that for one of the special ceremonies. So I put it on, and I was getting ready, looking in the mirror, you know, adjusting my collar and so on. And I realized I don't have my zagu. And I'm going to have to do 36 bows in this ceremony. And I don't have my zagu. And they're filming the whole thing, you know, our film crew from here are filming the whole thing and it's going to be shown. And So I start looking all around the room where several uh, priests were dressing. Can't find it. So uh, Reb Anderson, who is a teacher from San Francisco Zen Center, had been sitting at the table where I knew I left it. I knew I put it down there. And he was sitting there with his book studying for his talk. So I thought, maybe Reb picked it up by accident. So I sent my Jisha Bancho out a little down the stairs into the hall where um, he could find Reb, and no, Reb said he didn't have it, so back, Bancho comes and says, no, no, Reb doesn't have it, and we keep looking, and cannot find it, so he goes, I'll check one more time, back and bothers Reb, no, Reb checks all of his stuff, no, he doesn't have it, back, no, Reb doesn't hand it. So I'm wandering around looking for it for the tenth time, and I realize it's on my arm. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. <laughs> It's on my arm. <laughs> so then the next day when, when uh, Reb was, was there studying again, I, I was teasing him. I said, Reb, now today I don't want you stealing my soccer. <laughs> he thought that was very funny. But you see how these latent tendencies come up. And we work with them, and we work with them, and we can laugh at them, and there it is again. I didn't think he stole it, so I modified it a little <laughs> or took it on person, on purpose or wanted it. Even I thought maybe it was an accident. But my cheeks were red. I can still feel, I can feel them burning. <laughs> so even after we have significant openings, there's still work to be done on all these latent tendencies. Maybe that very work is enlightenment. The Theravada Sutta says that with complete enlightenment, all these latent tendencies are destroyed. So I was looking up this question of, are we born enlightened on, online to see other sources? And here is a very interesting modern comment from Quora. Do you know what Quora is? On the question, is it possible to be born enlightened? People ask questions and then there are various responses. So here's a response, which I thought was very interesting. Everybody is born enlightened, in a sense. When you are born, you see the world exactly for what it is. You have no ideas or conceptions tied to anything. When you see a tree as a baby, you don't think tree. You just see it for what it is. So this, you're a baby, but you don't think the tree is a baby. It's not a trunk and branches and leaves. These are concepts we develop so we can talk about a tree to others. A tree is nothing more than a concept we all hold, really. So if you take away all these concepts we have, so when you see something, you don't think anything about it, you just, you just see it for what it is. Then we're experiencing the world in a completely different way. If you saw an adult who had experienced their whole life like this, gaining no ideas or concepts of the world, they would appear crazy to us. They wouldn't even be able to talk 
On the other side, many people who gain ideas and concepts of the world become so attached to them that they mistake them for reality and forget the true nature of it. An enlightened person is someone who understands the concepts of the world, but also sees the underlying reality of everything. They realize that what they are, their personality, what they call I or me, is just a collection of concepts and ideas. They don't really exist as an independent I. They are the whole thing, and they know you are too, and we all are. There is no real separation. You are not separate from that rock. It's part of you. You are not separate from the universe. You are not separate from all that there is and all that there isn't. You are all of it. We are it experiencing itself. So there's a very lovely little video of one of Alan Watts's talks where he says, an apple tree is just appling. And the universe is just peopling and animaling and planting and so on. We are it experiencing itself. After realizing this, an enlightened person also sees that everything in the world is exactly where it needs to be. Nothing's out of place. No matter what chaos happens, things are unfolding exactly as they should. Should is kind of a loaded word, I would say, exactly according to causes and conditions. And we can find peace in that. It's not easy, but we can. I have no idea who this person is and no way to track down who they are. But I thought, well. So we have to ask what the Buddha did to become enlightened because we are followers of the Buddha and the Buddha was a human being. The first thing he did was to develop concentration. So he said, in the days before his enlightenment, he told us what he had done with his mind, how he had developed his mind. Some of you have heard this a few times, but many have not. And to learn it, to memorize it, I gave it a, a melody, a little melody, because melodies help us memorize things. With my concentrated mind, so concentrated first, thus purified, bright, unblemished, Rid of imperfection, malleable will thee, and attain to imperturbability, I directed it to. So he gives us all these clues about how he developed his mind. Concentrated, purified, so not a lot of adventitious thoughts. Bright, so clear, there's a clarity in the mind before thought unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, meaning can pick it up and move it where you want it to be, and attain to imperturbability, equanimity. I directed it to. So once the tool of the mind was prepared, then he began to contemplate some of the deeper questions. So in the beginning, in this session, we're emphasizing concentration, and we're following the Buddha's own path. Wieldy and malleable means we can pick it up easily. When it wanders off, 
We pick it up like an errant puppy or an active two-year-old, and we bring it back. Come back here, now. Then we direct our mind to first the body, body as body, then feelings as feelings, then the mind ground and mind objects. We have to stabilize the body and take care of a feeling tone that may accumulate thoughts and become a full-fledged overwhelming emotion. Some people think that's cheating. They think it's important to feel and share emotions. Yes, it's important for us to be aware of difficult emotions, and therapy can help us uncover hidden and troublesome ones. But is it important for us to share them, share them, or perpetuate them? Here in Sashin, we're doing backing up practice. So this is my signal for backing up practice. We have to do this all the time in our practice. What just happened that made this happen in my mind or my body? We detect the negative feeling tone. We recognize that it's not doing us or anyone around us any good. So we turn to the tools of practice to see if we can change it. And as you may have seen this morning, it doesn't take much to change a negative feeling tone. So for a moment, close your eyes and and generate a negative feeling tone. A simple way to do it is just to say no in your mind over and over again. No, 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 no. So this is aversion. No. See how that feels in body, heart, and mind. Then take a deep breath and change it to yes. Yes, yes, yes. Is that cheating? No, it's skillful means. It saves you and others suffering. It means that if we see that we're headed down a dangerous path towards afflictive emotions or thoughts, we're able through practice to pick the heart-mind up and redirect it to skillful and wholesome practices. This is exactly what the Buddha taught. He was meditating and he had the thought, suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. On the one side, I will put those that cause difficulty to me and others. What are they? Thoughts of ill will, anger, sensual desire, and deliberate harm. Suppose I pick up my wieldy, malleable mind and direct it towards another class of thoughts. Loving kindness, compassion, joy in the happiness of others. Breathing peace out into ourselves and suffusing ourselves with peace. Breathing peace out to the world. We all have this ability. And then if something sticks and we really work with it, and it sticks and it sticks and it keeps arising, then maybe we need to get some help. Once a monk asked great master Zen Geng Choko, what is the original Buddha mind? The master replied, it is the destruction of the world. The monk asked, what do you mean by that? The master answered, my body is destroyed. And actually in this 
uh, book, which Mazumi Roshi gave me, Chobogenzo, in the margin he wrote, my body is not existing rather than my body is destroyed. My body is not existing. Destruction of the world means that then, so the master went on, destruction of the world means that the entire world is Buddha nature. And my body is destroyed means that nothing exists apart from original Buddha mind. Do not think that you should destroy yourself. At the moment of your destruction, original Buddha mind gradually begins to cover the entire world, and each and every existence is seen as original Buddha mind. Do not think that you need to destroy yourself. You need to see through yourself, to see that the self as we know it does not exist. It is a collection of sensations, thoughts, and emotions. And so we sit and we prepare ourselves. We sit and we prepare ourselves. And sometimes the pivot turns. At the moment of the mysterious pivot turning, at the moment of your forgetting yourself in complete absorption in what is actually happening now and now, and now, then the realization of Buddha mind begins to creep into the space now left empty and covers the entire world. Please practice in this way, preparing the ground for the pivot to turn and Buddha nature to creep in to that empty space and cover your entire world. 